You're listening to Tone Vendors, the Sound Designers Podcast. Let's do this. Hello and welcome to Tone Menders. My name is Tim Muirhead and I will be your host for today. With me is Renee Coronado who is communing with nature in a remote cabin in the woods with some sketchy internet access. We'll see how this goes. How are you doing today, Renee? <laughs> what? I didn't hear you. No, I'm kidding. That's fine. (laughs) (laughs) Excellent. Our guest today is Emma Butt. Listeners might recall Emma's last appearance on Tone Benders in episode 143, where she talked about the art of recording ADR. We've asked Emma to come back and talk to us about her new research paper called Diversity in Post-Production Sound Roles in UK Television Production. She released it through the Sir Lenny Henry Center for Media Diversity. Emma examined the highest rated TV shows across the UK major television channels and then broke down the amount of diversity in the key post-production sound team roles on those projects. Emma, welcome to the show. Let's get straight into this. Tell us about the results of your research. Well, frankly, they are absolutely appalling. So how the research was done was it examined the highest rated TV shows over a three month period, the autumn period of 2019. Um, So in total, there were 60 available sound roles across these shows, and those were undertaken by 55 people. Um, Out of all of those 55 people, only one of them um, was identified as mixed race. The other, uh, all of the other people um, within those sound roles were white. Um, Out of those 55 people, six of them identified as women. Um, out of those six people, only one of them was a re-recording mixer um, and they only worked in factual TV. There was no women working in drama whatsoever. Um, and out of those 55 people... Wait, there was, there was any- no women working in drama or just no women mixing in drama? No women mixing in drama. So the women, the other women who were in those sound roles, they were working in drama but it was in sound editorial roles, uh, dialogue editing roles, but none were re-recording mixers. Um, and then out of the other results, uh, out of those 55 people, three identified as having a disability, but it wasn't a physical disability. So it was something like ADHD or um, I can't remember what the others were. Um, so no physical disabilities whatsoever. So, I mean, when you look at it and the breakdown, um, the fact that only one person across 36 top-rated shows was of mixed race. Frankly, that's, to me, appalling. Um, And out of those 55 people as well, no women were of an ethnic minority um, background. So, yeah, it's shocking. It is shocking, but in some ways it's not. This has been a problem within our industry for a really long time. And uh, I thought that maybe we were starting to address it better. So the shocking thing is not that it existed, but that it's permeating, I guess, that it's still around. I was hoping that we'd made some progress, but obviously we haven't. Emma, I'd love to get a little bit of context of the origins of the study and the methodology so that we can really have our heads wrapped around how the study came to be and and what the study really is. Okay, so... um How it came to be was that, I mean, I've been banging my drum on Twitter and social media for years now saying post-production sound in the UK has a massive diversity problem. And it was getting to the point where in order for people in positions of power to listen, 
you have to present them with facts and figures, hard facts and figures that they cannot ignore. And, you know, I tried to do this through various organisations and it just got to the point where I was like, if I want something to change, I'm just going to have to do it myself and hope for the best. So I was starting to look at doing this research independently when there's an incredible guy on uh, social media on Twitter called uh, Marcus Ryder, who is now an MBE because of his work for diversity within the film and TV industry. And he reached out by chance, just as I was starting to consider doing this independently and said, well, I'm working with the Lenny Henry Centre. Why don't you do it through us? Because it will give your study more weight so that when you do go to the broadcasters and you do go to the people in power to try and make changes, you now have the backing of the centre behind you and it will hopefully get them to take more notice and actually enforce change. So we kind of joined forces and the way it worked was that there's a magazine over here on an online site called Broadcast and every quarter they release the highest rated TV shows for that quarter across the terrestrial channels because obviously with people like Netflix and Amazon trying to get their ratings is near impossible. So it had to be focused on the terrestrial channels. So I used their figures as a starting point. So I started researching all of the different shows. I used IMDb. I found out the names and contact details, email addresses for every single person were on those teams who were in the key sound roles. So I know some people might be frustrated that I didn't look at every single role and every single production. But the problem was because the highest rated TV shows go across multiple genres. So it's not just drama, it's entertainment, factual, and the sound teams vary drastically in each of those genres, how many people are involved. I decided that it was better to get a realistic sense of what was going on by just focusing on the key roles, which was re-recording mixer, sound effects editor and dialogue editor because they would be common across all genres. So I started looking at those, started contacting everybody who was involved. Thankfully, I have to say, nearly everybody responded, which I was very surprised about. I did get a few no responses and I did get one person who said they don't do surveys and I do know that person. So I did not take offence to it whatsoever. I think they've had a very bad uh, history with surveys. They were like, I'm not doing it. It's like, okay, fine. I, I understand. But everybody else responded. No one was negative. No one was aggressive. Most were just like, what is the purpose of this? And I explained that I want to make a change. So as soon as I said that, they were totally on board. And after that, it was... I had to watch some of the, the shows to make sure that the credits were actually correct, that they did appear on screen. And then it came down to interviews with people. So as part of my connection with the Lenny Henry Centre, they put me with a mentor who had done proper research before, because obviously I'm a soundie. I sit in a room pushing buttons for a living. I don't do research like this. I haven't got the first feckin' idea of where to start. <laughs> You're very happy I said feck, aren't you? I am. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> I knew it. I've been trying to hold back so much. I knew it would get in eventually. I'm going to steal it from you at some point. <laughs> well, do you know what? I um, So this mentor that they paired me with, I got her a present at the end of our time together because she was just so incredible. And 
it was just like some chocolates and stuff to get her through because she's a university lecturer as well and they are having a horrific time at the moment, I, I feel, for any university lecturer. And I had to put on the note, because it was chocolate, and you never know if someone's vegan anymore. So I had to put on the note, I really hope you're not feckin' vegan. And she, uh, <laughs> she she posted the, the photo of my note on Twitter and was just like, this is possibly the greatest note I've ever received. <laughs> um so yeah, she. So sorry, you were going back to how you uh, use her as a mentor. Yes, sorry, totally uh, went on a diversion there. Um, we love tangents. Keep it up. <laughs> Thanks. Um, so yeah, she suggested to make sure that I was accurate about people's experiences. She suggested reaching out to various people in the industry who are from, I think, minority backgrounds or who are women. And speaking with them about their experiences and seeing what they had been through. Because obviously as a woman in sound, I've faced sexism. I think myself and Shay spoke about it on the ADR podcast. I mean, Shay's stories still haunt me, some of the stuff that she's gone through. And I've gone through my own stuff too. So I was like, okay, there's definitely people out there who've been through worse. And sure enough, the interviews just uncovered even more heartbreaking stories. I mean, the one that that always sticks with me is one of the the participants, he's black and he has moments where he feels like he has to bring a white male colleague with him to meetings with new clients in order for the clients to feel more comfortable. Wow. And when he told me that, I I was just like, oh my God. Uh, I, I said, oh my God. And he was like, why are you saying, oh my God? Like, this is just how it is. And the thing is, he's so used to it that he's not surprised by it anymore. He's not shocked by it anymore and couldn't understand why I was so appalled. And I just think that is so wrong on so many levels. Like you should not feel that you have to bring someone who's white into a meeting with clients to make them feel at ease. That's not right. There is another story from uh, one of the participants who's a woman who, when she went freelance, she met with a sound supervisor and his team was primarily male. There was no women on the team and she was trying to get work with him and become part of their team. And he said to her, well, I like you, I like your work, but what if you get in a relationship with one of the guys and it all goes wrong and uh, it all becomes very awkward and then what am I going to do then? Now, Never mind the fact that she might not be heterosexual, she could be gay. Um, to even say that to someone is so offensive and that should never even come into it. It's about that person's work, their work ethic. Can they do the job? Not are they going to go and sleep with one of the members of the team and then it's all a little bit awkward for everybody. Like that's that should not even come into your head as a consideration when hiring someone. Two of the people decided that the only way that they could progress in their careers was to actually create their own companies because they felt that if they didn't, they they just couldn't go any further. Uh, one was noticing that while he was working in a post-production facility, his jobs were always focused on black stories. So if a, a drama came in that was based in Africa and about black lives, he was automatically put onto it. There was no even thought to put someone who wasn't black on the show. And it's just, I can't get over what people are going through and it's not highlighted and nothing has been done about it. 
And it's, yeah, to me, it's just not okay. So it needs to change. And I'm hoping now that with the release of the report and the publicity that it's gotten, people will start to wake up and people will start to take notice and start to hopefully change their attitudes. And there'd be a bit more effort put into when you're hiring a sound team, be it if you're a sound supervisor, if you're post-production supervisor, production manager, whatever your job role is, that you'll start taking into consideration that you need to look at different people that you haven't used before. Can we talk a little bit about the amount of time and expense you put into generating the report? Because it seems like it'd be something that if you were a decision maker up top, you'd want to see those types of numbers and how they evolve over time. So what would it take to replicate the report in the future? Well, I have to say I did this while working full time over, I think I did it within two and a half months. So it actually isn't that difficult to do. I mean, it does, the interviews were all about an hour and a half each. And then the research, the research is a time consuming part and it does take quite a few hours because obviously you have to make sure that you're accurate. And I didn't just rely on IMDB. I was trying to find every single show, try and find the credits and trying to watch through the credits. So I, I ended up with a lot of subscriptions to uh, streaming services that I necessarily didn't really want, but you know, <laughs> it was beneficial in the name of research. Um, I can't really give you an exact figure on how long it took, but it took quite a few hours to go through everything. The Lenny Henry Center very kindly offered me a small grant for my time. So even though I was working full time, I did take a few days off to make sure that I could give this my proper attention. So that kind of covered those days that I didn't work. So their plan is, bless them, I think they wanted to see how I got on first. And they were a little bit worried that this was all go uh, tits up and it would not be successful. Um, and then I think they were quite surprised by what I had found and how it worked and it worked out successfully. So they're now, I was a pilot scheme. And they're now providing funding to five other people. So everybody is allowed, you know, submit their proposals to them and they'll give out grants of £3,000 to five different people to research different areas and do the exact same thing that I've done. It could be for grading, it could be for online editing, any different role. I think the next roles that need to be investigated are on set. Because craft and technical roles never get the the attention that they need. And that's why this report needed to be done. We're yeah. always swept under the cover. Any of the, the conversations that have been happening in the past few years have always been about on-camera directors. I think editors even, uh, picture editors get more attention than we do, but never any other roles. And it's like, well, why? We're part of the crew as well. We're part of the, the storytelling process. It's important that we're diverse as well. What personal response have you gotten? Um, I've actually been quite surprised. I I actually forgot to do it, but I was planning on turning off the comments on my Twitter posts because I was afraid I'd get trolled and I was really afraid I'd get negative comments. I haven't had one. Um, the only one that was negative was when I posted about the, the publication date of the report. I got a comment from someone who I've actually deleted it now and I've blocked the person. But it was an aggressive message saying, well, what right did I have to do this because I'm white and European? Now, never mind the fact that I'm a woman in sound and I have faced issues as well. I'm also mixed race. I'm half Pakistani, half Irish. And growing up, 
as a child in Ireland, I was one of the only brown kids in my school and I got racially bullied. So I have experienced racism. Now, I've never experienced it in the workplace, but I've experienced it. So I think that gives me the, a right to do this. Not that I need it. Anybody has the right to do this. Yeah, I guess I, the reason I asked that was because I, I would have had the same assumption you do, that it's almost a troublemaker kind of role to step up and say, hey, look around, let's let's change this, right? Yeah. So from a professional perspective, the fact that it's been received well, is a, that's at least encouraging. Yeah. I mean, this is probably a bit of a controversial thing to say, but Fekka, I'll say it anyways. I've noticed that there's certain people in the audio community that I thought would back it and be more supportive of it. And they've kept silence. And that has surprised me more so than anything. So although there's not been nasty comments or any difficult feedback, in some cases, there's just been no support and no feedback. And I think that's actually slightly worse. Wow. It's kind of one of those things that, you know, my mum used to say, if you've got nothing nice to say, don't say anything at all. And I'm sure that's the, the case with some people. And then other people, I know that there's probably a fear there that if they speak up, are they going to get targeted or is it going to affect their career? Because that's what all this comes back down to is fear and um, fear of being hired. And I don't have that anymore. I'm in a comfortable place. I have really good clients. They they hire me. They know that I speak out about all of this. I don't think that's going to change anytime soon. Yes, there may be people out there who will decide that they don't want to work with me because I've done this research and I speak out about it so publicly. But if they don't want to, then they're not people I want to work with in the first place. So yeah, it's it's been interesting. It's been great to have people like you and people like Pro Tools Expert publicly supporting this and, you know, helping me get the report out there and get more people to see it. Um, so we'll see what happens. I mean, hopefully a few more voices come to the front. Well, if anyone listening wants to actually read the report, we'll put a link to it on our site, or you can simply Google the Lenny Henry Center for Media Diversity. I'm sure you can find it there. We will post a link. But as I was reading it, like the first couple pages that are the summary... They're alarming. You listed a lot of it at the beginning. Like it's very little diversity going on within these programs. But as you keep reading the report, it gets more heartbreaking and more heavy as you get into the interview section. You highlighted a couple of them. The fact that the gentleman feels like he has to bring a white person with him to his meetings was, it, it was alarming to me. I, I'm a white male and, uh, a lot of the things that they talked about, I could relate to, you know, I can relate to how hard it is to get a foot in the door in this industry. I can mm. relate to working for free for a while in order to get my first gig. I can relate to taking a step backwards in order to switch streams. But I did all of that as a white male. So I can't imagine trying to tackle all these things with kind of my proverbial hand tied behind my back without that advantage. And having someone say that they can't hire me because I might date someone and then break up with them. That's... <laughs> unbelievably ludicrous. Yeah, you and I would never face that. <laughs> <laughs> Speak for yourself, Renee. <laughs> but yeah, it, it, it's something that is, uh, it's not an overly long read. It's, I think, 16, 17 pages. Like it's, yeah. it's not something that you have to commit hours and hours to reading, but it is something that you have to commit a lot of brain power to because after you finish reading, it sticks with you. So I would highly recommend that everyone listening 
doesn't just take our little overview of this. Go actually read it. The link will be on the, our website for this episode. Click on it and read it. It will only take you like 25 minutes, half an hour. Read it and let it sink in, and we've got to find ways to make this better. And that is one of the things that this paper talks about. Emma, if you could go in through uh, some of your ideas for how to move forward. Yeah, so over here in the UK... When it was being highlighted that directors were facing the issues that I've raised in this paper, you know, there was no diversity whatsoever. There's an organisation over here called Directors UK, and they started to try and find ways that that could be addressed. So they linked up with the BBC, who's one of our public broadcasters here in the UK, and they came up with the Continuing Drama New Directors Scheme. And what that did was it would take a director who may be in factual or entertainment or in kids, but who wanted to progress their career into high-end drama. And they would bring them out onto a set of a continuing drama like Doctors or EastEnders, or I think you guys would call them soaps. Um, is it soaps in the States? Yep. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, so it'd be like a soap in the States. And what they would do is they would be paired up with a director who's experienced. Um, They would shadow them for the pre-production, the prep, the shoot, and for the post-production. And then after they had shadowed them for maybe one or two episodes, they would then be given an episode or a block of episodes themselves. And they would take on the process. But they would have that mentor of a director there for them who would be there as support, would help them through any issues they were having and make sure that they were, you know, progressing well. Um, And that was the main thing. It was that they had a support system in place. The other main thing was that all of this was paid. So they were never doing it for free. And the other thing was that at the end of all of this, they would get a credit because as we all know, credits are gold dust. You need your credits to progress. So... They were then coming out of this experience with experience itself, a paycheck, a credit, and the confidence that they could then go on and continue to do this alone. And that scheme was proven to be highly successful. Uh, Directors UK have written research papers about how it's gone and um, it increased diversity across all of the productions that the scheme was involved with. So I kind of looked at that and said, well, that is something that is very, very easily replicated in sound. Because when you look at the sound department for any high-end drama, there's multiple roles. And frankly, we never have enough feckin' hands on the team and we never have enough time. So having an extra pair of hands there is just going to be beneficial to everybody. It's giving someone an opportunity who may be stuck at mid-career level and can't progress. It's also giving someone an opportunity to come in as a sound assistant because I don't know what's happening elsewhere in the world, but in the UK, sound assistant roles are becoming few and far between. Um, within post-production houses and especially freelance, uh, freelance-wise, I think the only time you can get a sound assistant role is if you're on a feature film and even then it's the big blockbusters. So it would address two, two key areas, which is new entrants and mid-career you could then get someone to do exactly the same thing that directors have done, which is shadow a dialogue supervisor, a sound effects editor, a re-recording mixer for one or two episodes, get them comfortable, get them to know the workflow. And then after they've done that for an episode or two, take on an episode themselves. 
And again, it gives them a support system. It gives them the credit. They're then exposed to new clients that may not have been aware of them. Um, you know, it's also up to the individual. They have to prove, you know, they can handle the job. They can do the work, which I have no doubt that anybody who would be involved could do. The tricky part of it is, is that it has to be independently funded because the clients have to feel no risk going into this whatsoever. Because if they don't have any risk, they have no excuse to say no. So who funds it on the director side? The director side, it's funded, partly funded by the BBC and an organisation over here called Creative Skillset. I think they changed their name to. They changed their name a little bit. So uh, it's hard to keep up with what they're called these days. So it is funded by various bodies. So it's not funded by the productions themselves. And that's the key there. That would have to be the case as well if this was done for sound. So my next port of call is to try and get funding for the scheme and make the scheme happen. So I've started having conversations already, but obviously COVID has fecked everything up this year. Yeah. And obviously fecked everybody's money up as well. So my plan is to wait until the new year when things are starting to calm down and get back to normal, or I use normal in air quotes, and start approaching the streamers, the broadcasters, everybody, and start to try and get funding for it and make it a reality. Because as the figure's shown, nothing is going to change. We're going to still be in this horrible position with no diversity unless something, a targeted approach is taken to address it. And that's the, that's the key difference as well. There's been the BBC over here in the UK have come out in the past couple of weeks and said they have new diversity quotas that they want to reach, which is, oh God, I shouldn't have brought this up because I can't remember the quotas, but they're trying to, I think it's 20, 20, 50 and 12. So it's, uh, or maybe it's 50, 20, 12. So it's 50, 50 diversity, 20, uh, 50, 50 gender diversity, 20 ethnic minority diversity and 12% disability across all of their productions. Now, the thing is, that's that's going to be easier to do in some key roles or in certain roles and not in others. So while it's a great thing that they're trying to do, it's not necessarily going to work because some areas are going to need a more targeted approach, a more focused approach, and they're going to need clients to be told, you have to feckin' do this. You have to make sure that this department has a a minimum quota or a minimum requirement of, you know, at least 50-50 women and at least 20% diversity within that team. Like, it's not just sound. If we go to uh, camera, gaffers, lighting, how many of them do you know that are non-white males? Because for me, I, I can't think of that many. So in that case, that's where the targeted approach has to has to come from. So in the U.S., the Academy has implemented a thing recently along these lines to where you do have to meet certain percentages to be eligible for Academy Awards. Yeah. That's definitely a leverage point that can be used. The other thing is, and again, this is U.S.-centric here, but a lot of the states have um, tax incentives to do productions in the various states. So Georgia has a big tax incentive, you know, come to Georgia and meet all these requirements and, you know, you get a big tax write-off. And the same thing's true in Louisiana and Texas has one, New Mexico has one, California's got one. Tim knows Toronto started that. 
that's another point of leverage that governments could put into place as well. But, you know, I really do like the concept that you were talking about of an externally funded mentorship training role, specifically because I think some of the genesis of the problem, and you see this in other industries too, like you see this in uh, in NFL football head coaches, right? They have a diversity um, interview requirement in the NFL yeah. for head coaches, but still it's just all white guys. And the reason it's all white guys is because people bring their networks to their hires, right? Yeah. And I think a similar effect may be happening with Sound Supers, right? You're not going to hire somebody that you don't know. And I think the the externally funded intervention where you have um, support staff that gets brought on that is from a diversity background as opposed to a homogeny background, I think the reason that's working in the director side is because it introduces the people that make those hiring decisions to people they would not have otherwise come into contact with. And then they can then start to be part of their team. And that's just part of your network, right? Again, as a, as a super, you're more likely to hire people that you know. And you're just more likely to know people that you've worked with in the past. And so this injection at the base level, I feel like, is a super, super promising thing. Because the thing that you can't do is you can't do like what they did in, in the music space, right? Where they do blind auditions for, you know, lead violinist or whatever, all right? Because before they were doing that, it was just all white guys. And then once you stopped being able to see the person playing the violin, then the skill set would do all the talking and the diversity naturally increased once you were able to pull that factor out of people's decision-making process. Can't really do that in the sound hiring space, right? Yeah. But I think the forced injection of, or at least the funded injection of diversity at the assistant level is a super, super promising for that reason though. Yeah. And do you know what? You've hit the nail on the head as well with hiring practices like so one thing that I always feel I have to say is that I know I know how how under pressure people can be because deadlines are getting tighter budgets are getting tighter and I fully appreciate that sometimes post-production supervisors and sound supervisors are in a situation where they've been told okay a job is going ahead next week you need to get your team together and you need to start on like the Monday and so in that situation, of course, you're going to feel like, well, I can't take a chance on someone that I don't know because, you know, we've got a very tight deadline and we need to complete this within a certain amount of time. So I need to go with people that I know and I trust and that can get the job done. And I fully appreciate that. But until that cycle is broken, nothing's going to change because then it is the same people being hired and hired again. And the other problem that we're going to face by continuously doing this is... All of us boogers are going to feckin' retire soon enough. Like, I don't think any of us are planning on doing this until, you know, we're we're dying slumped over a mixing desk or a, a boom pole um, well into our 80s. So what about the next generation? I mean, and that's the, the critical point for making sure that we have a diverse entry level targeted approach is they're going to be the ones that take over from us. And we need to make sure that the ones that do they are not only properly trained, but they they represent the world that we are now living in. And the world is London, the States, Ireland, everywhere is becoming so multicultural and so much more diverse. And we now need to reflect that in our teams. So we now need to make sure that we have a system in place to make sure that happens, which is 
creating diverse roles in sound assistants and also helping those at mid-career level because they need the help as well. We can't just forget about those people. I think another important point to make is that diverse crews are stronger crews because yeah. if you're only pulling from a narrow segment of the population that can do the job, and just because that, that segment happens to be represented in your, in your circle, if you expand out to the rest of the planet, the best of the best, when you include women, when you include Pakistanis, when you include Africans, when you include Americans, et cetera, et cetera, it's going to be a stronger group of the best of the best than if it's just the best of the best of white guys. So by diversifying, you're expanding your talent pool and you're able to pull strength in places that would have been blind to you in the past. It, absolutely. And I mean, people from diverse backgrounds as well, uh, diverse cultures. I mean, when we're working on a show and it's set in a particular location, like there is a, a show that I worked on last year and it was all Mandarin dialect. And I know for a fact that that production needed someone who was a dialogue editor, who was a fluent Mandarin speaker, um, because none of the cast had been. <laughs> or I think some of the cast were, but not all of them. And they needed someone who could make sure that everything that was being said was accurate, that, you know, there was no mistakes in the dialect, um, in the script. And they struggled because there are not that many Mandarin speakers who have been trained as dialogue editors who could work on a high-end drama in the UK. And that's a problem. And we need to rectify that because we are going to come up against these problems again and again. Um, having people from diverse backgrounds is just going to make us a stronger, as you said, Renee, a stronger team completely. Well, I think that's probably a pretty great place to end it because it's a pretty basic statement that I think we can all uh, try and aim towards. So thank you very much, Emma, for joining us today. Thank you very much for doing this research paper. I hope someone in the United States can kind of take this under uh, advisement and trying to produce something similar for that market as well, because I have a feeling they'd come up with very similar results. Oh, well, thank you for having me. And uh, again, thank you for supporting it. I really appreciate it. Thanks, Emma. <laughs> Thanks a lot. We'll uh, have you on again soon because you're our favorite person that says the word fact on our <laughs> podcast. <laughs> You mean like, I'm the I'm only person who says it? If I said that, it would just come off wrong, you know? <laughs> I think you were the first person to say tits up as well, so... Oh, uh, feck. <laughs> She's so deeply Irish. <laughs> you just want me to come on just so you can get a new saying out of me every time, don't you? It seems like a reasonable request. <laughs> I don't know whether to be insulted or offended right now. <laughs> But obviously we had you on because of the work you're doing and uh, keep up doing that work and uh, we'll get in touch with you maybe in a year or so to see how the uh, how you've been able to progress with the uh, getting funding for uh, the, the back end of this, how to make this all better. Thank you. Uh, and fingers crossed it works. For sure. Yeah, this is, this is the type of work that actually affects change. Okay, thanks for listening everybody. We'll see you next time on Tone Vendors. Thanks, see ya. Thumbbenders is produced by Timothy Muirhead, Renee Coronado, and Teresa Morrow. Theme music is by Mark Strait. Send your emails to info at tonebenderspodcast.com. Follow us on Twitter via at the Tonebenders and join Tonebenders Podcast on Facebook. Support this podcast. You can use our links when you shop with Amazon or B&H or leave us a tip. Just go to tonebenderspodcast.com and click the support button. Thanks for listening. 